You're listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. Welcome to the show. To the listeners in the United States and my friends over there, especially in the cities of Minnesota, Los Angeles, Portland, and New York, please exercise a great deal of common sense before going outside, and for the love of God, do not participate in the chaos. I can't see how looting Nike, Benetton, Louis Vuitton stores is going to help the situation at all. Of course it doesn't. It's a whole heap of just bloody, it's not even anarchy, it's beyond that, it's chaos. What can I say? Around the world, nobody, no single country will benefit from the decline of the United States of America. The whole world has benefited in some way through the innovations and the great people, the contribution of the great people of the United States. So I'm sending as much love and thoughts as I can. I know it doesn't do a goddamned when you say sending thoughts and love and prayers and stuff, but I'm still doing it regardless. So please, if you're over there, look after yourselves. Now to the matter at hand. Okay, here we go. Metallica, Load Through to St. Anger, 1995 to 2003, a career retrospective. Long-time listeners to the show will know I don't give a shit about Metallica these days, except for Rob Truglio. I think he's a magnificent musician and bass player. But uh, Metallica lost the plot many, many years ago, and this is probably where it started during this eight-year period here, a truly bizarre and maligned period for the band. Those load albums, you'll hear my thoughts and feelings, I won't mention anything now about them, uh, throughout the episode. I try to be as balanced as possible, and I think I've done that. It actually went to air, this episode, on 4ZZZ Digital, which is community radio in Brisbane on the 7th of November 2017, so it's a few years old now, but... I think it stands up. I think it stands the test of time. I hope you enjoy listening to it. So here it is. Metallica, Load Through to Sinanga, 1995 to 2003, a career retrospective. Guitars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Digital. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I hope wherever you are and whatever you are doing, you are well. This is my 14th episode, so I want to welcome you to what I certainly hope is an inspiring and rewarding listening experience. The premise of each show is to dive deep into an artist's catalogue of music, highlighting career-best performances, recordings, and uncovering aspects of their work that are less celebrated. The subject on this episode is the band Metallica. What you're about to hear is a narration of the blog entry that I posted to my website earlier in the year. I spent considerable time researching and putting together a comprehensive summary of controversial episodes enveloping Metallica's career, occurring from late 1995 to 2003. Through the episode, I'll play cuts from Metallica and other important artists that complement the retrospective. The track playing in the background is called Jump in the Fire. It is taken from the 1983 studio release by Metallica, Kill 'Em All. Let's get to it. Metallica, load album series, through to St. Anger. 1982 was a time when metal and hard rock were still sorting out how to make sense of the end of an era for one of its biggest names in Black Sabbath and the end of the road for another in Led Zeppelin. Kiss had lost both band members and commercial traction in North America and Deep Purple had both broken up and hadn't released a studio album in well over seven years. There was also a sense that, while... 
the new wave of British heavy metal that was bubbling along over in the British Isles, and a few Teutonic outfits were the metal for the times, with the exception of the soon-to-be colossal Bruce Dickinson-fronted Iron Maiden and the already commercially successful Judas Priest, there wasn't much happening either side of the Atlantic with regard to significant mainstream cultural representation from heavy metal. Then came Metallica. The name alone stands tall as the edifying monolith to the change that heavy metal would experience after the release of numerous Dave Mustaine and Heineken-powered demos, then through the incendiary debut album Kill 'Em All in 1983. It's here that heavy metal adopts the puerile energy of punk to become thrash. While it is true that many thrash bands were active during the same time period producing metal sounding somewhat similar to Metallica, for example earlier Anthrax, none would have the broad appeal of Metallica and certainly none would achieve anywhere near the same coverage across so many markets of the following years. In the simplest possible terms, Metallica changed the game. In a review that I authored for Hot Metal Online for the 2016 release Hardwired to Self-Destruct, I described the two albums following Kill 'Em All as two of the most continuously influential albums in recorded music history. A big statement. But Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets are albums that have transcended the genre, and as I will go on to explain, they transcend even Metallica themselves. The era that started in 1996 with the release of the Load and Reload albums through to and including the events surrounding the Sonanga album release in 2003 are without doubt the most controversy-plagued and critically questioned of the band's career. What I present here is a synopsis of this era with some personal insight added. And Justice for All and the Death of Cliff Burton. To ensure the scene is adequately set, it is necessary to highlight some key points surrounding the studio releases between Master of Puppets and the Load album series. Clifford Lee Burton occupies a mantle that very few bass players, living or dead, will ever reach. His influence on Ride the Lightning is immense. However, it is his contributions to Master of Puppets, including the superb instrumental Orion, that's the track playing in the background incidentally, that make this album Burton's very own magnum opus. was bell-bottomed and almost permanently mustachioed. He is the misfit, unintended, and fan favourite that is revered as the aura surrounding this magnificent period in Metallica's career. Burton's death due to a road accident in Sweden in 1986 devastated his bandmates and fans alike. The incoming Jason Newstead probably thought he had won every lottery drawn that year by winning selection as Burton's replacement. Unfortunately for the highly competent Newstead, 
After putting in a strong showing on the $5.98 EP Garage Days re-revisited, which was released in 1987, the first of many peculiar episodes enveloping his tenure was on the near horizon. The recording sessions and mixing of the first post-Burton album and Justice for All in 1988. The song playing in the background is called Blackened. It is a first track from the 1988 album by Metallica and Justice for All. Some well-publicised commentary from Steve Thompson. The engineer who worked on the album surfaced in 2015, adding a remarkable twist to the saga surrounding the lack of audible bass on Injustice for All. Thompson is quoted as saying that even though Newstead killed it on bass, perfect marriage with Hetfield's guitars, Ulrich asked him to bring down the bass to where you can barely audibly hear it in the mix. Thompson further offers that he thought they were looking for a more garagey type sound without the bass. One could hypothesise that the band was simply not ready to replace Burton, that Ulrich may have felt it was more appropriate to change the band's sound as a sort of compromise. Worth noting is that Newstead contended with an at times brutal array of pranks and hazing through his tenure in the band. The lack of bass guitar in the mix didn't seem to impact fans' then acceptance of a new Metallica album, Sans Burton. However, And Justice For All will always be held as a flawed thrash classic by many. Commercial success. Just Why Am I Playing Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, a track taken from the 1989 album of the same name in the background? Well, the answer lies here. To follow up And Justice For All, Lars Ulrich spoke earnestly about the sound producer Bob Rock had achieved on the album, and that Rock would helm the new Metallica album. This was the first sign that the band's overall direction would veer from the straight-up metal path trod to date to something a little bit different. The song playing in the background is the big one, The Game Changer. It's the one that ushered in a new era, Enter Sandman. Known universally as the Black Album, given it was an album that carried no title and carried all black artwork, it arrived in late 1991 to massive fanfare and an even bigger commercial response. For each existing fan that may have shied away from the Black Album's simpler arrangements and radio-friendly polish, another 100, maybe it was even another 1,000, truth be told, bought the album purchase a ticket to the globe trotting, wherever we may roam, or nowhere else to roam, or even the Guns N' Roses and Metallica Stadium Tour, and of course they duly procured the concert t-shirt to prove attendance. It was a monumental accomplishment as far as then metal bands were concerned, particularly so given the looming grunge meteor that landed around the same time in Nirvana's Nevermind.
Fender Sandman is a game changer, then Smells Like Teen Spirit, the track you can hear playing in the background, is an ongoing cultural monolith for the disenfranchised, alienated, and just plain bored everywhere. Not to mention rock and roll fans. It's a colossus, and I've played it many times in cover bands and have seen the positive response a performance of it yields, from punters aged 18 to well over 60. The awkward and in hindsight deeply troubled Kurt Cobain wrote an album that literally ended the careers of thousands of bands, plying their trade in musical tillage not too distant from where Metallica now found themselves. The Black Album tour cycle ultimately concluded during the Shit Hits the Sheds tour in late 1994, which included headlining the first recreation of the famed Woodstock Festival. The band entered the plant studios in Sausalito, California in May 1995, where the recording for Load and Reload commenced. Producer Rock was once again ushered in for production duties. Playing in the background is the first single that was released from the album Load in 1996. It's called Until It Sleeps. So let's deep dive into the episode surrounding the album Load. It is impossible to say for sure when news first started to filter through that the new Metallica album, designed for release to coincide with the retail boom North America experiences during their summer, was intended to be a very different affair from all that had passed before it. What is without question? is that Metallica in 1996 were certainly and fundamentally no longer willing to be known as simply a metal band. The band agreed to reams of interviews, mainly describing the birthing process for songs, tone and gear choice, as well as the repeated desire to think forward or words to the effect. In all the interviews that I managed to find posted online from that year, and recall from my own reading and publications featuring interviews with the band members back then, the band never actually fully explained why there was a decision to move away from the metal tag. The closest we may ever get is 18 years later. When asked about Metallica's headline slot of Glastonbury, Lars Ulrich quipped, People say it's controversial because we're the first metal band to headline Glastonbury. But I'm not even sure we're metal. Glastonbury's one of the biggest rock festivals in the world and we're one of the biggest rock bands. You heard it there. The first track I heard was the lead single Until It Sleeps during its premiere on Australian radio station Triple J. James Hetfield and Jason Newstead had made the trip to Australia to promote the album lead single. Both sounded very amicable and fan-friendly when being interviewed. Until It Sleeps contained a verse strain that I'd never heard from the band prior, and the cynic enemy thought they'd released a track for radio play, one that mirrored the grunge epithet of loud chorus, quiet verse. It actually turned out that the band had even gone to the extent of naming their demo of the track after a well-known Soundgarden song. The accompanying music video would also be the first concept or theme video in the band's career. Directed by Samuel Bayer, who also directed Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, of course you heard that earlier in the show, the video appeared to be a nod to Ulrich's evolving passion for the fine arts. I purchased the single for an 18th birthday present, one of my mates. So I had an opportunity to sample what else was on the disc. 
a live recording of the new track 2x4 and a skeleton version of Until It Sleeps which was designed to give the fans a taste of what the song sounded like when it was being demoed or worked on in a rehearsal room by the band. But what struck me first though was the stylized new logo on the cardboard cover of the CD single. The iconography of a metal band's logo is almost as important as the music it accompanies. What Metallica did was remove the bullet belt and spiked wristband provoking M&A in the logo and replace it with a far less threatening and more marketable script. It was a sure sign that things would be very different from here on. Of interest to note is that in 1997, Metallica Luminary, or previous member, Dave Mustaine, would do something similar for the Megadeth album Cryptic Writings. However, Megadeth's famous scripted logo would be paired with a block-lettered logo that fans could accept as merely a part of the album's visual narrative. Like so many, I purchased Load as soon as I was able to obtain a copy. I listened to it in its entirety, and at the time, found only a single song that contained trace elements of the Metallica that I liked. That track is The House That Jack Built. The opening tracks, Ain't My Bitch and 2x4, start with riffs that would work well between bull riding events at a rodeo. Both tracks also appear to be the genesis of a feature for all future Metallica releases. Ulrich's penchant for relatively simple drum arrangements that sit very high in the mix. Of the other singles released, Hero of the Day and King Nothing are attempts at straightforward hard rock fare, and Mama Said is the biggest departure from the band's traditional sound. Mama Said is essentially the album's obligatory power ballad. In a contentious move, the track features lap steel guitar and overt country music stylings. Did and do Metallica possess the DNA to write and perform rock-infused bluegrass or country music? Well, the jury is still in recess on that one all these years later. However, Mama Said doesn't actually sound out of place on the album given the propensity for slide guitar to appear across so many other songs. Let your son go. 
Of the 14 songs on the album, it could be roughly divided into halves. Three of the four singles are in the first half, rendering it the stronger of the two. On the second half, along with Mama Said, Poor Twisted Me, Thorn Within, Ronnie and The Outlawed Torn are tunes that veer far from the Metallica that had evolved to that point. It is also very important to note that when Hetfield and Newstead were in Australia for the promo tour that I mentioned earlier, both made repeated references to the brilliant Caius, whose blue cheer inspired songcraft certainly commanded attention against the grunge narrative of the time. Caius supported Metallica during the Australian leg of the Nowhere Else to Rome tour, which landed on these shores in 1993. How much of an effect did Josh Homme and Co. have on Metallica across each of the nine dates is not necessarily a mystery. I will hypothesise that key elements of the California Cantina at the Desert at Dusk vibe of the then-in-market album from Chaos, Blues for the Red Sun, and its excellent follow-up, Sky Valley, made their way onto the Load album series. The most notable is the thick, bouncy, blues-inspired riffage, and Ulrich may have paid particular attention to Brent Bjork's ride-soaked drumming. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. That was the Kaius track, Demon Cleaner. Now, if you combine the Kaius elements with the band's well-known love of blues-based hard rock such as Black Sabbath, Thin Lizzy, Aerosmith, ACDC, and UFO, then overlay this on the template that produced the Black Album, that's one way of summarising the change in the sound found on the Load series of albums. A change in musical direction and a new logo paired with the album cover art and updated visual identity of the members of the band, were all ingredients for a polarising reception. For the prudish, the album cover art is patently vulgar. The artist, that's Andre Serrano, owns semen and blood between two sheets of plexiglass. Serrano was already rather infamous due to a piece called Immersion Piss Christ, which is a photograph of a crucifix and a glass of urine. I recall from interviews at the time, that Hetfield hated it and Newstead just plain old refused to talk about it. In my own then 18-year-old mind, the artwork was plain weird and made very little sense. After the blood, lightning, graveyard, sword, and the blackened snake that had been used on other album covers, it certainly wasn't linear. Photos that accompanied the album booklet were another matter altogether. The band enlisted famed Dutch photographer Anton Corbin to essentially mimic his collaboration with U2 from their 1991 release, Achtung Baby. 
Depeche Mode was also a muse of Corbin's around the same time, and the resulting sessions would significantly influence the final Metallica product. Wear the slight frame of the demure Dave Garn dressed in the fashion of the day and the choir boy looks of Depeche Mode's outstanding guitarist Martin Gorwick wonderfully against the star cues that Corbin is so synonymous for creating, many fans and critics felt Metallica had taken one bridge too far through the collaboration. A brief search in Google for Metallica, Corbin, 1996 photos returned at images of members of the band posturing and pouting, wearing eyeliner, shagpole coats and snakeskin pants, Inside the booklet accompanying a load CD, many more photos like that await. The photos illustrate men approaching middle age, members of one of the most popular bands on the planet reaching for the opportunity to redefine and maybe even reinvent themselves. It's important though to note that the change in image actually started two years beforehand. For a performance at Woodstock 94, the most metal of the group, that is Jason Newstead, already sported a crew cut. Hetfield looked a lot like Dog the Bounty Hunter, and Kirk Hammett rocked what looked like a fringe of dreadlocks. Only Ulrich looked as he always had. In early 1996, when Alice in Chains recorded for MTV Unplugged, all four members of Metallica attended, and they all had short hair. So the haircuts accompanying Lloyd weren't a surprise to many. I certainly felt that the, given the era and the band's proximity to the mainstream, it was inevitable. Now, Hetfield is on record as stating that he is uncomfortable with the Load Album series and the accompanying imagery. He also calls the Load Album series the U2 version of Metallica and that Burton would have been an ally in providing resistance to the band's then direction. While not implying the blame for this era lies with Ulrich and Hammett, now due to the band's dynamic, Newstead didn't have any real decision-making power, so I'm going to leave him out of this. It's a telling comment from the bloke who had to stand out front and sing those songs answer the media's questions and interact with fans as the most clamoured for member. Now as for what Burton may have thought, Hetfield sums it up nicely, and I quote, There's some great, nice songs on there, referring to Load and Reload. However, in my opinion, is that all of the imagery and stuff, that was not necessary. And the quantity of tracks that had been written, it diluted the potency of the poison of the band. And I believe Cliff would have agreed with that. Due to intense interest in a new Metallica album, Load sold a staggering 680,000 copies in the first week and has since been certified five times platinum in the US of A. next segment, let's talk about Reload. So Reload was released in late 1997, a little over a year after Load to what I remember was a weary metal listening public. Numerous then popular newsprint publications had taken aim at the perceived reasons for fans' disdain for Load. The Rolling Stone quipped that fans were in a dither over a few haircuts, some eyeliner and a little songcraft. And the same publication later proclaimed that Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets and Then Justice for All were, and I quote, 
transitional albums that moved the band from the pure aggression of Kill 'Em All to the flawless Black Album. Most will agree and remember that 1997 was a low commercial ebb for heavy metal. Iron Maiden was touring and releasing albums without Bruce Dickinson and Adrian Smith. Max Cavalera had just left Sepultura. Pantera had started their own drawn-out and ultimately tragic demise as they splintered as a band through the recording of the excellent yet critically underrated The Great Southern Trend Kill, which was released in 1996. There were very few metal bands with major label support, which is so essential to securing mass distribution of a latest release. Heavy metal, or just plain old metal, with a few notable exceptions, had gone underground. Reload contained songs written the same time as the batch that appear on Load. In what was due to be a double album, Metallica staggered the release of the songs over two separate albums as they hadn't finished recording the songs that eventually made Reload. There was also the added advantage of the prolonged touring cycle such a decision would afford. The lead single from Reload was The Memory Remains. That's a track you can hear playing in the background. And it features the ever-endearing Marianne Faithful. Near the end of the track, she can be heard beckoning the listener to say yes, at least say hello. One can almost envision this lyric as the band themselves asking a maternal figure to reach out to fans, asking them to give Reload a chance. The cast changed little across the album. Producer Rock was allocated production duties again. Serrano's artwork would once again adorn the album cover, virtually repeating the same concept as on Load, with a single change. This time around, it is his own urine and blood between two sheets of plexiglass. This is my comment here because semen is just so 1996 and urine was du jour for 1997. The photos accompanying the album were credited to Corbett again. But this time around, the shagpole coats and snakeskin pants stayed in the closet. Corbin's photography focused on the band doing what they do best, performing live and in various states of motion. The change in the photo concept can also be used as an analogy for the principal difference between the two albums. Reload is more focused. Where Load can roughly be divided into two halves, the talent is spread evenly across Reload. The songs bite a little harder. They pack more punch overall. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. If Load starts with a pair of cuts suitable for a hillbilly rodeo, then Reload commences with a cut customised for illegal street drag racing. Fuel starts with a rapid-fire vocal quickly halted by the turbines under full-throttle roar of the opening riff. This song is important in the chronology of Metallica's evolution as it contains passages that sound like riffs, but really aren't. Maybe you call them quasi-riffs? What started on this track is further refined in a few years on the ill-fated Mission Impossible 3 soundtrack song I Disappear, but much more on that later. Thank you. 
If Mama Said was a detour to Nashville, then Lowman's lyric is a pit stop in a Bavarian beer barn due to the hurdy-gurdy that adds a touch of ye old Europe to the album. The hurdy-gurdy was borrowed incidentally from Jim Martin, who was the original guitarist in Faith No More. Elsewhere, Devil's Dance is probably the heaviest track on both albums. Both Attitude and Fixer, that's spelt with three X's by the way, sound positively Dio-fronted Black Sabbath, and The Unforgiven 2 is another attempt to bring country into the current Metallica sound. The finished product on this album cut is a heavier cousin to the music on John Bon Jovi's excellent Young Gun soundtrack. This song is a personal favourite of mine as the chorus contains a stunning, instantly memorable, yet versatile lyric. It twists the double entendre, of the song's title, rooted in a subtly restrained riff. Reload would go on to sell 436,000 copies in its first week, still staggering numbers, and has since been certified four times platinum in the US of A. Now, as far as a hardcore fan could be concerned, a fan whose tastes are rooted in the thrash era, is there a genuine upside to the album series? Hetfield's voice never sounded better. Maybe the decision to change the tuning of the guitars to E-flat helped. I'm also willing to wage that the listener appreciated finally getting to hear the bass guitar again on a Metallica album. Jason Newstead had a tougher task than he would likely admit. This cat can play, and for a genuinely creative soul, it must have hurt that his single songwriting credit on both albums is where the wild things are. Now, without trying to court controversy, he is almost a better fit for Metallica, sonically, than Cliff Burton. This is due to the sustained attack playing the bass with a pick provides. And let's face it, Newstead had mastered playing between the percussive rhythm jam of Hetfield and the loud and often erratic Ulrich. Or Ulrich. Gosh, I've been saying it both ways through the episode. Anyway, never mind, let's truck on. Newstead was so often the band's defender in both print media and in recorded interviews. 
I do recall an interview with the publication Metal Maniacs in about 1998 where he was asked if he was aware how highly regarded that he was by metal fans. Now the response was bashful and almost apologetic if I recall correctly. Later in the same interview he said that fans needed to respect Hetfield and Hammett as they were the teachers and if you were playing the guitar fast with plenty of palm muting and downstrokes then it was due to them. I think he has a very fair point there by the way. When it's all said and done, and regardless if the band felt that they had a warrant to experiment on whatever they released after the colossal success of the Black Album, what Newstead or any member couldn't varnish was the most damning assessment that many critics of the Load series of albums raised. The absence of many truly great heavy metal riffs. The type that revolutionised metal on Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning, of course, Master of Puppets, and maybe even on And Justice For All. If both albums were condensed to a single release, limited to a more palatable 11 tracks, in no particular order, this is what I select. The first four tracks are from the album Load. The following six tracks are taken from the album Reload. Here we go. The House of Jack Built, King Nothing, Hero of the Day, Wasting My Hate. Then we get to the Reload tracks. The Memory Remains, Devil's Dance, The Unforgiven 2, Where the Wild Things Are, Prince Charming, Attitude, and Fixer. Let's have a look at the load and reload touring cycle. It would come as a surprise to virtually no one that Lollapalooza founder and Jane's Addiction frontman Perry Farrell was strongly against Metallica headlining Lollapalooza number six. Still, the idea that Metallica's setlist could potentially contain the biker bar stomp of Ronnie and the roadhouse at dawn lament of Mama said, all on the same stage at the ethereal Elizabeth Fraser of Cocteau Twins sang Cherry Colored Frunk, say that again, Cherry Colored Funk, not Frunk, and Wax and Wayne, raises a chuckle and more than a few eyebrows.
1996, the almost four-year global trek in support of the Load album series started with Metallica headlining the globe's foremost alternative music festival. Reviews for their performance certainly weren't disparaging as Metallica's true bullpit is the live arena, and looking over set lists from the time it was stacked with songs from the previous albums, the ones that were released through the 80s. Farrell has since softened his view on Metallica's billing on the festival, but the sentiment is still there, and it ought to be mentioned that the festival went on indefinite hiatus following Lollapalooza No. 7 in 1997. The global tour was called Poor Touring Me, and started a month after commitments to Lollapalooza No. 6 ended. Looking over set lists from the time, about four interchangeable songs from Load, and the yet-to-be-released Reload made the set. Again, reviews are solid. Trainspotters will be interested to note that Soundgarden was a major support. Once Reload was released, the global tour title was switched to Poor Retouring Me, get it? See the play on words there? And Touch, Peel, Stand, Hitmakers, Days of the New were enlisted as a support act. The addition of Reload songs to the repertoire took the Load series contribution to about six songs each performance. I attended one of the Australian concerts in 1998 and I can recall some restlessness during the Metallica in the Round segment where they performed classic numbers as acoustic versions. Now I could have imagined a ferocious sneer from the architect of many of Metallica's favoured songs, Dave Mustaine, as Metallica performed The Four Horsemen in this acoustic format. Looking over old set lists, Low Man's Lyric and Mama Said were also segment features. Keep in mind that this was well before the days of 24-7 media coverage and social media, however I am unaware of any controversy that surrounded the tours. Fans flocked in their hundreds of thousands and I'm sure the band made a killing from the merchandise stall and renewed interest in the back catalogue. I believe the tours are notable for the following reason. The Load series tracks that made the setlist eventually found a home amongst the thrash canticles in much the same way that an awkward child settles into a new school. The stock of bona fide classics such as Creeping Death and Leper Messiah skyrocketed and to this day, approximately half of a Metallica set is a revolving selection of songs from Kill 'Em All, Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. Considering Metallica has 10 studio releases to its name, that's a significant tip of the hat to that particular era. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. Let's have a look at Garage Inc. Ulrich was interviewed and stated that he wanted Metallica to release a studio album every year until year 2000. Wasting no time at all, as soon as obligations to Paul Retouring Me concluded in September of 1998, the band hit the studio to record a double album of covers and musical keepsakes called Garage Inc, which was released before the end of the year 1998. It was revealing that the logo on the album cover is a starkly drawn stylized version of the logo that adorned all albums up to and including the Black Album. Was this an olive branch to what the band now probably realised were some extremely faithful yet disaffected hardcore fans? Garage Inc. apes the $5.98 EP Garage Days re-revisited, released over a decade prior, and the EP itself would even be included as a part of the package. The band chose to cover an array of artists that inspired them, veering from the violent street punk of Discharge, the sinister storytelling of Nick Cave, 
and prime new wave of British heavy metal selections that inspired the band to play instruments in the first place. Once again, Bob Rock is selected to produce, well, co-produce with Ulrich and Hetfield anyway, indicating a desire to stick to the Blues Meets Black Album sound from the Load Album series. There certainly are some interesting and enjoyable moments across the album, and train spotters will again recognise that Die Die My Darling was an honourable nod to one of Cliff Burton's favourite artists, The Misfits, and the band performed the song with commendable vigour. Is the decision to go back to their roots motivated by the critical response to the Load series? The band certainly never let on, but one can't help but feel that the timing was appropriate. We're going to keep listening to this one in memory of the great man, Cliff Burton. Let's have a look at Symphony and Metallica, aka SM. After the period of relative calm that was the Garage Inc. album and tour, Metallica threw another curveball right on the dawn of the new millennium, SM, Symphony and Metallica, which was released in 1999. In April of 1999, Metallica performed alongside the San Francisco Symphony at the Berkeley Community Theatre to rabid fans and confused season ticket holders of the Symphony. 
The decision to perform and also record with the San Francisco Symphony certainly worked on paper and lists the exceptional Michael Kamen to morph a symphonic arrangement around choice cuts from the band's catalogue. Kamen would be known to most metal fans through his arranging the score to the rock and metal-leaning soundtrack on the 1993 Arnold Schwarzenegger film Last Action Hero. That soundtrack is a personal favourite of mine, by the way. Once again, the release polarised fans and critics. My own take on the matter is that there is no room in the thrashier numbers for a third guitar, yet alone a whole orchestra. The orchestra sounds as if it is playing an entirely different song on the track, The Thing That Should Not Be. It works marginally better elsewhere. Metallica's music ultimately clashes against the instruments used in an orchestra. So the genesis of Lulu is here in the teeming of Metallica with an element not found on their periodic table. Some tracks do work well though. In the same manner that Deep Purple's John Lord composed pieces specifically for Concerto for Grip and Orchestra, released in 1969, both No Leaf Clover and Human were designed specifically for orchestral arrangement and are justifiably the album's highlights. I'll pause for a moment to put forward a theory, one that at least sounds reasonable. Why did Metallica release S&M and Lulu, which was released in 2011? Lars Ulrich has made no secret of his rather avant-garde European upbringing. He loves his art and is by all accounts a polite and cultured fellow who has all the time in the world for Metallica fans. Now he's met a lot of fans over the years and he may have got a sense that the average metal fan or Metallica fan I should say would benefit from some exposure to genres and forms of art they otherwise would not seek for themselves. Ulrich may see himself as a guide or a chaperone to the uninitiated and there was no better way to introduce some culture directly than through Metallica's music. I Disappear and the Napster Controversy In May of 2000, a track called I Disappear, specifically recorded for the film Mission Impossible 2, was released. A demo version of the track found its way onto the internet and was distributed over P2P network Napster, well before the release date. As a consequence, radio stations started playing the track and Ulrich was not a happy man. Speaking to the Rolling Stone, he said that it was sickening to know that our art is being traded like a commodity rather than the art that it is. In April of 2000, Metallica filed a lawsuit against Napster and a few universities as it was on campuses around the USA that P2P flourished and many universities refused a request by Metallica to block access to Napster. Drawing comparisons between P2P and the tape trading scene, would Ulrich have made the same remarks about tape trading in the early 80s if they were by then a band with almost 10 studio albums to their name, hundreds of thousands of fans globally, and a storied place assured in hard rock and heavy metal? Would so many heads have started banging if it were not for the fans that copied and dubbed the demos and early albums of Metallica? Essentially, it's the same thing, reproducing an artist's work without consent or permission. Of course, the sheer scale of P2P networks such as Napster presented a real problem to the music industry. The Recording Industry Association of America, or the RIAA, had actually beaten Metallica to the punch, they sued Napster in December of 1999. The controversy for Metallica reached a flashpoint when, during a media event orchestrated by the band themselves, 
Ulrich arrived at Napster head office to personally present the names of over 300,000 Napster users who at some point had participated in the sharing of Metallica songs over the P2P network. Ulrich was heckled and jeered. At one point, a fan even smashed Metallica CDs in protest. But Ulrich maintained, this is not between Metallica and its fans, and that this is between Metallica and Napster, let there be no question about that. Although the perception from fans was very different, fans felt targeted and perhaps justifiably so. Copyright law expert Eric Donny said, if Metallica or anybody else who was being infringed wanted to start picking people off to make an example of them, they could. It would be many years before streaming services such as Spotify and Apple Music started to replace P2P as the dominant media source, in doing so finally issuing a commercial model that awards the artist a royalty when fans consume music over the internet. Ulrich is on record as stating that he is a fan of Spotify. Something that was overshadowed was the track I Disappear itself. I certainly felt that the song and accompanying Mission Impossible 2 inspired video are a strong contribution to the Metallica catalogue demonstrating the evolution of something I referred to earlier in the critique of the Reload song Fuel. Metallica were mastering the use of the quasi-riff, single notes or chords in a staccato sequence. Using this philosophy, the riff was mainly about the timing of the notes and the chords rather than the actual notes or chords played. Elements of this can also be heard on Sad But True from the Black Album, the one that was released way back in 1991. Bob Rock co-produced I Disappear with Ulrich and James Hetfield. The overall vibe, I can use that word I think, of the track is distinct from the songs on the Load series. The overt blues influence is largely absent and in came something that sounded like a precursor to the mainstream rock that prevailed in the following years from bands such as Nickelback, Theory of a Dead Man and Three Days Grace. I Disappear is also Jason Newstead's swan song. In what I believe is his most creative contribution during his tenure as the band's resident bass player, the pre-chorus contains a simple grooving bass riff that sends counterpoint to Hetfield's vocal. The bass line itself can almost be isolated as a melody in much the same way Motown legend James Jamison so effortlessly added depth to the Marvin Gaye classic, What's Going On? Let's have a look at the events surrounding the album St. Anger. Let's start with Jason Newstead's departure from Metallica. On balance, Jason Newstead's addition to Metallica is probably best summed up as right bassist wrong time. He cited chronic injury as the reason for his departure. Newstead left Metallica in early 2001 to focus on the decidedly non-metal Echo Brain. This decision seemed rather odd. The most metal referencing member of the band the member that kept up to date with the modern metal scene leaving and releasing what is essentially a pop album. Years later, Newstead would reveal that Metallica's management had expressed an interest in releasing Echo Brain material, until James Hetfield's influence cancelled the arrangement. Now Hetfield has gone on record as stating his desire to limit the members of Metallica contributing to other projects is because he, and I quote, always thought that when one guy jams with someone else, that will fuck with Metallica. The fist is no longer four fingers. It's not as strong. 
end quote. My theory here is that sensing Hetfield's disapproval may have stemmed from the Sepultura meets Godflesh sounding IR8 demo that made its way onto radio in 1994. I ponder if Newstead engineered Echo Brain as a means of pursuing a creatively fertile outlet well away from the brand of hard rock and heavy metal Metallica was known for. Either way, Newstead quit Metallica and his next venture was to pursue Echo Brain with Figure, losing funds that he had personally invested. The project was favourably reviewed, however it received very little commercial attention. Newstead would eventually leave Echo Brain in August 2002. Newstead would go on to feature an Ozzy Osbourne's band and Canadian thrash legends Voivod. He has made a few forays back into the world of hard rock and heavy metal, although as of 2016, he was performing acoustic music. The track that's playing in the background is actually by the band Echo Brain. It's a track called Spoonfed. It's taken from the EP, well at least I think it's an EP given it's only three songs long, Strange Enjoyment, and it was released in 2002. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. Let's have a look at the film Some Kind of Monster now. At some point prior to the recording for the album that would eventually become Santanga, Electra Records commissioned director Joe Bellina to direct a behind-the-scenes documentary about the making of the new album. In what would eventually become a rockumentary addressing the dysfunction of the band, a synopsis you can read on IMDb, I certainly won't do it here now, viewers retreated to scenes of Ulrich yelling at Hetfield, Dave Mustaine venting to Ulrich, Kirk Hammett talking about his ranch in Northern California, 
and Jason Newstead discussing his reasons for leaving Metallica. One of the more memorable scenes in the film is where bassist Rob Truillio is handed a cheque for $1 million to entice him to join the band. The question that I posed, along with many other viewers of the film, was, is some kind of monster really necessary? Why did the band subject themselves to the scrutiny of the public in such an open manner? Was it necessary for the cameras to be rolling once a discussion started, something Ulrich felt was required in order to keep the discussion civil? Why not just use that footage as a historical document to remind the band of a particularly dysfunctional cycle of their timeline? Critical opinion be damned, Metallica would release the film to an unprepared public. This was the time of the Osbournes, reality TV series, The Amazing Race, and Australian or American Idol. Issuing the film was at least a daring and shrewd move on the band's behalf. Perhaps anticipating the reception the new album would receive given its polarity to literally anything else in the band's catalogue, it feels a lot like a companion piece for the listener to make sense of what is a fearlessly unlistable upcoming album in the spirit of Lou Reed's Metal Machine music. Viewers could also witness the embryonic stages of the songs that made it onto Sananga. Not that you can tell from eventually made it onto the album, such as the sonic delta between the album and the rehearsal tracks shown in the film. Santanga the album. The album itself almost defies review. I view the album as a contribution separate from anything else in the band's catalogue, and that includes Lulu, as that was a collaboration. Santanga is, in every way possible, a statement. It's a dare. The band issued the listener a challenge on this album, to keep up with them, and almost survive the listening experience. In what would be Bob Rock's final production credit with the band, he also played the bass guitar in the absence of an appointed bassist. Rock has been unfairly accused of initiating the significant change in Metallica's sound since he came on board to produce the Black Album in 1990. For those that aren't in bands or yet to spend any time in a recording studio, unless you're in a boy or a girl band, it is usually the band and not the engineer or the producer that determines the artistic direction. Metallica as a band are certainly the protagonist in the overall change in direction, particularly so on the Black Album and the Load series, now of course Sananga. Rock was simply the man who facilitated the change in Metallica's sound. The agent of change was and is the musicians that comprise Metallica. Were there any tracks on Sananga that warrant a closer inspection? The answer is profound, as each album cut has the potential to come to life. The riffs were actually there this time around, however it's like listening to a song buried underneath white noise amidst enveloping arrangements. Literally each song sounds as though it has been arranged in a single afternoon. The decision to tune to what I understand is low C, which is one and a half whole steps below the tuning featured on the Load album series, is disorienting. Only the title track with its prison break imitating video filmed in the notorious San Quentin Penitentiary sounds as if it is anything close to what it was, a leading album cut, designed to entice listeners to the album. Kirk Hammett and his chops appear to have sat this album out, there's not a single guitar solo in sight. So much has been written about Ulrich's performance and the drum sound. I feel like adding the album to the theory that I proposed in the review of SNM Symphony of Metallica. 
it simply cannot be a matter of dismissing the drum sound as a matter of personal taste or preference. Ulrich was reaching for something. What that was, he has never explained, yet the drum sound on Sananga has been compared to the bashing of tin cups on steel trash can lids. I'll hypothesize again that due to the enormous fan base that Metallica by now boasted and the still rising stock of the thrash era songs, Ulrich may have felt that he had one more roll of the dice on pushing fans and critic boundaries. An individual of Ulrich's intelligence would have had to have known that producing such a din would cause controversy. Regardless, Ulrich, to his credit, couldn't care less. Sananga was released with an accompanying video for the band performing the album in a rehearsal space. The lasting legacy of the music on Sananga is that this visual accompaniment is the best medium to digest the cuts on the album, far above attempting to listen to the album cuts alone. Alright, let's conclude the retrospective. Despite the change in direction that occurred on the Black Album, a change that would only essentially be resolved in the 2008 release Death Magnetic, Metallica became the most successful and certainly most popular heavy metal hard rock band in history from 1991 to 2003. What is it about the band that attracts the legion of followers that will in many cases defend the band's decision to do whatever they want? Check blabbermouth boards next time Metallica are mentioned. How many comments do the band attract in response to an article compared to virtually any other band mentioned. There is a level of emotional investment that invites the listener to become a part of the band on every album. Myself, I can certainly recall significant events in my own life and songs or albums from the band that were released that coincided. Even the material that I don't particularly fancy, this is also the case, but I was a lot younger then and I didn't have adult commitments when the Load Album series was issued. The band does possess an X-factor. Is it Hetfield's vocal? Ulrich's penchant for interviews? The tremendous riffs that change metal and ride the lightning and master of puppets? The fearlessness in which the band adapts the self-initiated change? It is no doubt different to each and every listener, and I think that's what makes this band so unique. I'm going to leave you with a final thought. Having listened to and critiqued the latest release, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, the only controversial change that I would suggest is that Ulrich step out of the band and act as an executive producer, allowing a younger drummer with a deeper appreciation of the modern techniques of drumming to interpret Ulrich's accompaniment to Hetfield's riffs. On recorded evidence, Tim Young from Morbid Angel, Chris Adler from Lamb of God, or Ray Luzier, who was in KXM, Korn, and was one-time member of David Lee Ross Band, would be worthy additions and add considerable merit. I'm certainly not suggesting that Ulrich leave Metallica. That's not impossible, since he and Hetfield are its heart and soul. I'm going to turn up the sound on the track that's playing in the background. You're listening to One, as it appears on the 2013 release, Through the Never. When I return, I'm going to back announce the raft of tracks that have played over the episode, and then I'm going to conclude the episode by playing some of my favourite Metallica tracks of all time.
welcome back. That's a long track, but it is a bloody good one. Let me just say that. Okay, got to do the important job here of back announcing the tracks that have been played through the episode thus far. Starting from the top, I'll work my way through to the track you just heard. All tracks are performed by Metallica, unless otherwise stated. At the very beginning, you had an excerpt of Jump in the Fire, taken from the 1983 album Kill Em All. Then there was Orion from Master of Puppets, which was released in 1986. Blackened and Justice for All, 1988. Dr. Feelgood, which is written and performed by Motley Crue. It is the title track of their 1989 album. Enter Sandman, taken from the self-titled, a.k.a. The Black Album, 1991. Then there was Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, taken from their epic album Nevermind, 1991. Until It Sleeps, from Load, in 1996. Hero of the Day, from Load, 1996 again. Actually, I'm just going to skip saying 1996 because we all know now that that's the year that Load came out. The House That Jack Built from Load, 2x4 from Load, and Mama Said from Load. That's it for the Load songs. Then we had The Monster from Caius, Demon Cleaner, from their epic Welcome to Sky Valley, released in 1994. That was followed by Mysterious Ways from U2, from their very good album, I might say, probably their last great album, Aktung Baby, 1991. Then we had one of my personal favourite bands perform Stripped, Depeche Mode, taken from their 1986 album Black Celebration. Do get into them if you get to experience Depeche Mode. A lot of metal fans do branch out and find a lot of value in Depeche Mode's music. The first song that we heard from Reload, and uh, of course that was released in 1997, so I'll just say it now this once, was Memory Remains, which is followed by Fuel from Reload, then Low Man's Lyric from Reload, Unforgiven 2 from Reload again, and finally, Where the Wild Things Are from Reload Again. Then we had the excellent Being Caught Stealing from Jane's Addiction, taken from their Ritual de lo Habitual album, which was released in 1990. Check out the bass playing on that album. That guy, I can't remember his name. It's not Eric Avery. It's, um, can't remember it. Anyway, excellent bass player. Which is followed by Cherry Coloured Funk, or Frunk, as I think I called it when I was talking to you in the first half of the episode, by the Cocteau Twins taken from their Heaven or Las Vegas album, which was released in 1990. Then there was Touch Peel Stand, performed by Days of the New from their 1998 self-titled album. I used to like that back in the day. I used to try and play that on the acoustic guitar, actually. Which was followed by a couple of tracks from Garage Inc., which, of course, which was released in 1998, Whiskey in the Jar and Die, Die, My Darling, the Misfits cover. All followed by No Leave Clover, from SM 1999, that's the year that it was released. I Disappear from the Mission Impossible 3 soundtrack, released in 2000. I won't talk about the Echo Brain track because I did a lot of talking about that before we went to the break. Some Kind of Monster from Sananga in 2003. Then there was Sananga from the album Sananga, released 2003 again, of course, it's in the same album. And then finally, you heard One, taken from Through the Never, released in 2013, the live version. Okay, the tracks I'm about to play for you are from early in the band's career, and they are three of my favourite tracks. The first you'll listen to is called The Four Horsemen. It was co-written by Dave Mustaine. It's taken from the 1983 album Kill Em All. The next track is called Creeping Death, probably my favourite Metallica track from early in the band's career. Don't know whether that one was written by Dave Mustaine as well, but it certainly sounds a little bit like it. I don't think he was given the album credit is what I mean. It's taken from Ride the Lightning, which was released in 1984. And the third track you're about to listen to is Harvester of Sorrow. It's got an excellent riff in it, 
It's taken from the 1988 Baseless album, let's call it that, and Justice for All. Let's get to it. Actually, before we get to it, I need to tell you that you are listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Digital, and of course, my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Let's get to it now.
Welcome back. At the top of that three-song set, you heard The Four Horsemen from the 1983 album by Metallica, of course, Kill Em All. It was followed by Creeping Death from 1984's Ride the Lightning. Gosh, I was about to say And Justice for All then. That's on the next. Well, the song that you heard after Creeping Death has been taken from And Justice for All. It's Harvester of Sorrow. Can't get those two mixed up. They're incredibly different albums. Why didn't I play anything from Master of Puppets? Well, I played a little bit of it beforehand, didn't I? I probably listened to the album too much, to be frank, and I've listened to it to death through my teen years. I haven't listened to it in a very long time. It doesn't mean it's not a great album, but I am playing the songs that I tend to listen to right now for you all. All right, so let's get to the next one. Sad But True. I put this one on in the car the other day, and I was surprised at how good it sounded after all these years. I wish it was sped up a little bit, but that's okay. It's all personal preference. The band decided to do it at about 95 beats per minute or whatever it is. It's very slow. It's a very brooding, very brooding, because it's very very descriptive. It's a brooding and menacing riff. It would sound fantastic in my view if it was sped up a little bit, though. Anyway, without further ado, as Joe Rogan says, let's get to the track. Here is Sad But True from the self-titled release in 1991, a.k.a. The Black Album.
That was Sad But True from the 1991 self-titled release from Metallica, a.k.a. The Black Album. I'm going to leave you with these final two tracks. They're easily my favourite two tracks from across the Load and Reload album series. The first song is called Fixer, and the second song is called Prince Charming. Hope you enjoy them.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith, and you have been listening to Scars and Guitars on 4ZZZ Z Digital. Please do join me next week. It's a very goodbye for now. I think the 2017 version of me said it all there, so I'll simply say that coming up very soon on my podcast series, so it's 2020 at the moment, today's date is the 3rd of June, look out for the Paco de Lucia and Jaco Pistorius career retrospectives. I'll be releasing them sometime in the next few weeks. Ciao for now.